Okay, this morning we're in Luke chapter 14. You got your Bibles, turn there with me. Uh, Sunday church next week is going to be 10.30, okay? So 10 on the announcements, it's actually going to be 10.30, but you can come at 10 and hang out. And uh, we're looking forward to that time. It's going to be uh, lots of fun next week. And so, hey, let's get into God's Word this morning and pray. Father, this morning we just come before you. And Lord, as always, we want to thank you for the written Word because it leads us to you, Jesus. You're the living Word. And it's our desire to end up in the place of sitting at your feet, Jesus. And so we pray that, um, Lord, that you'd just draw us this morning. We pray that we would hear what your Spirit is saying to us. We pray, Lord, that um, our hearts would be open to receive the wonderful things that are in your Word, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, God, would you just bless this time, we pray, as we dig into your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I was thinking about this text, I was recalling a time many years ago when Lisa and I uh, was just, we only had one child at the time. We got a sympathy invite to a dinner party. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, maybe you've given out the sympathy invite, but we, we were the recipients of the sympathy invite. Some friends that we had were getting together with some other people on a New Year's Eve, and we got the invite. We didn't know the host, and we went, and it wasn't a very good night, actually, because pretty quickly we felt like we were like the outsiders. Uh, the host went out of his way to make me feel like the two-bit youth pastor hanging out there. I'm like, wow, this is really weird. And it was like we're sitting at the dinner table, and anytime there was like conversation kind of directed, it was like we were kind of being put in our place. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is super crazy. It was like really awkward. And I thought, man, I, I feel like I'm just being made to look stupid here all night. It was really strange. And, I, and I, I had to work to be really gracious. And I remember at the end of the night, we got in the car, and Lisa's like, wow, those people are really mean. And I'm like, yeah, what the heck, man? Every time we, like, talk about that situation, we're like, wow, those people were really mean. Um, and I was thinking about it, how fun it would kind of be if we could actually go around the room and talk about different, you know, stories that you might have or I might have about awkward situations that you've ended up in at a dinner party. You know, maybe, maybe uh, a guest or two that you invited who didn't really act the way that you were expecting them to. Uh, have you ever had a, a dinner guest whose behavior made you really wish you hadn't invited them? Like, imagine this for a moment, okay? Just for fun, you invite me over for dinner. I come to your house, and as your guest... I just begin to point out the inconsistencies in your life in front of everybody at the dinner table. It's like the lasagna comes out, and I'm like, lasagna? You're serving lasagna? You told me the other day you don't like Italians, you know, or, or, or whatever it is. I just start to take shots at whatever it is. Crazy. This guy's serving us uh, lasagna, and he doesn't like Italians. You know, some people would not consider that to be polite, right? Imagine not just pointing out the inconsistencies of your host, but beginning to say things about the guests. Like, hey, I see you invited uh, your super wealthy neighbor. What's that all about? Your boss is here. You trying to suck up? What, what's the deal? You're buttering up, the, buttering up your boss? What's going on? And then, you, and then you move from talking about the host to talking about various guests. Hey, I noticed that you uh, cut the dessert and you saved the biggest piece for yourself there. Nice move. And things would get pretty awkward. And then someone, you know, is just trying to smooth things over. So they say, hey, 
are, are you going to church tomorrow? And I answer and I say, yeah, but I imagine you don't, you won't be there. You know, you're not the kind of person I would think would make it to church on a Sunday morning. What a nightmare, right? Like, what a nightmare, you guys. You'd think to yourself, I will never invite that person to my house ever again. Well, what's shocking is that this text tells us Jesus was that kind of guest. He was invited to the house of a Pharisee, and many times when he was invited into the house of Pharisees, uh, uh, he did not turn out to be the kind of guest they were expecting at dinner time. You know what a Pharisee is? I was thinking about what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee is someone who, when they pray to God, they thank God and they say, God, I thank you. I'm not like that person. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Like the Pharisees, you've heard this before, were famous for that prayer where they would pray, God, I thank you you didn't make me a Gentile. I thank you, God, I'm not a woman. I thank you, God, I'm not a dog. The, the, the Pharisees would literally pray these things. That's the heart of a Pharisee. I thank you that I'm not like that guy, God. And in Scripture, a number of times in the gospel record for us, we read that Jesus was invited into the house of a Pharisee for dinner, and he didn't pass up the invite, but he didn't exactly turn out to be the guest they were expecting, the polite little guest. We've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke. It's been something that's been striking my heart this time through Luke's gospel, and we'll see it again this morning, and it smashes, smashes the idea that we love to hold about Jesus in our culture. This, we talked about this in Luke of sentimental Jesus, who allowed his feelings of love and tenderness to set aside truth and reality and that which needed to be spoken. And the truth is, is that Jesus did not sacrifice truth on the altar of feelings. He perfectly embodied grace and truth, and he said the things that needed to be spoken. So that idea of Jesus is always nice, always saying the right thing, always charming, always gracious, was not the reason people wanted to kill him, right? They, they nailed him to a cross. They hated him. There were many who wanted him dead. Why would you crucify someone who was always nice? Why would you crucify someone with whom you always agreed, whose words always pleased you? You'd like to hear what they had to say. You would not crucify that person. And so Luke tells us about this situation where Jesus gets invited for dinner to the house of a Pharisee, and Jesus starts, I'm going to just say it this way, he starts by making the host almost look like a fool. Now, mind you, we're going to read this in a moment that the Pharisees were watching him closely. Uh, the Pharisees may have intentionally planted a diseased person there to create a situation because it was the Sabbath. Luke doesn't tell us. We just, we just maybe speculate on that, but... We don't know. Back to the times of the kings of Israel, disregard for the Sabbath was one of the reasons, the major indictments that the Lord brought against the children of Israel that led to the Babylonian captivity and them being conquered. So when they were restored to the land of Israel after their time of captivity, 70 years, there was this hyper-awareness amongst 
the people of God about the practice of honoring the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had essentially become like self-appointed law enforcement, police agency for the Sabbath practice of others. And so it's a Sabbath. Jesus is going to the house of the Pharisee. And let's check us out what happens. Verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler, of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So here's Jesus. They sit down, and he's like, Boys, let's just cut to the chase here this morning, okay? It's the Sabbath. There is someone clearly sick right here in our midst, diseased. Let's not ignore the elephant in the room. Let's not dance around the issue. Let's hit it head on, face on. Is it lawful? Can you heal on the Sabbath or not? You know, one of the things I notice about Jesus is this. Let me tell you something about Jesus. You can't, you can't invite Jesus into your house and not expect him to move the furniture. That's how I'm going to say it. It's like you invite Jesus into your heart and he's going to take his finger and he's going to say, we got to deal with this. Hey, Jesus, this is my heart. Make it your home. By the way, Jesus, what do you think of my heart? Look at Jesus is not going to come into your life and tell you that he approves of everything in your life and that everything you're doing is okay. He's going to come in and he's going to assure you that he loves you that he cares for you, that he has a plan and a future for you, and then he's going to say, we have to deal with some things. And he'll take his finger, and he'll put it on some sensitive things, and he will say, you are going to have to let me put this in order. Jesus, I would say this, Jesus is a loving, he's, he's not an easy guest, but he's a loving Lord. And he does this in the house of the Pharisee, he addresses the obvious. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And verse 4 tells us, but they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. That's the power of Jesus over sickness and disease. Amen. And I love this. What Luke says, it's just like totally matter of fact. He took him, he healed him, he sent him away. Okay, next point, you know, let's, let's move on. Verse 5. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So, you know, the Pharisees, they had this long list of what was right and what was wrong and what you could do on a Sabbath day and what you couldn't do. And they were trying to, I would say this about the Pharisees, they were trying to do what was right. And Jesus was pointing out to them, hey, you're sacrificing truth in this situation. You're sacrificing compassion for people for the sakes of your tradition. And when we read this, you know, it's obvious to us. We know this. Like if your son fell in a well, you don't care what day of the week it is. You don't care what hour of the day it is. You're going to rescue him. Your ox fell into a well, whether it's the Sabbath or not, you rescue that animal. But these people, they, they were silent, which makes for awkward dinner setting. Like imagine that, you know. Sir at the table, all of a sudden the question's asked and everyone's like looking around waiting for somebody else to answer. Silence is, you know, not a great way to get the conversation flowing. So it's awkward, you know, at this table. So Jesus decides to put his finger on another issue. 
in the midst of the silence. He noticed people were scrambling when he came in and they sat down to eat and they took places of importance around the guest of honor. They organized themselves on the basis of their self-importance or their position. So verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they had chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Awkward. And, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I, I was, you know, prepping the sermon, and I was surprised how many times the word awkward was coming up in my mind. I'm like, I could have just titled it awkward. Uh, and this is awkward. To have someone take the seat of importance to assume their rank amongst the people that they're hanging out with and then be removed and asked to sit somewhere else. We understand this. Jesus says it's way better. Way better to be called up than sent down. I, I was thinking about that in pro sports. Way better to be called up than to be sent down. And better to be called up than to be sent down because we assume something wasn't something that wasn't ours to take, you know. I would say this, verse 11, we should have this underline in your Bible. If it's not underlined, you should underline it, put brackets around it, I don't know, circle it, do something with it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said this five times recorded in the Gospels. He says, don't be eager to exalt yourself. It makes me think of Jesus, who himself, you know, is the example of one who came to serve. He came as a servant. And, you know, I want to say to us, you know, don't desire great things for yourself. Just desire that God would be glorified through your life. And then just start to serve wherever he's placed you. I, I've actually heard this said that 95% of our lives are spent just doing ordinary things, you know, taking out the trash, washing dishes, making your bed, you know, whatever it is, 95% of your life is lived doing ordinary things. So, so the attitude that we take is that Christ would just be glorified in everything. And that begins with the ordinary things in life. Jesus, just be glorified. I'm going to serve my family. I'm going to take this action. I'm going to do this. I, I pray that you will be honored. Just have the heart of a servant. It's amazing, you know, as Jesus says this, like, you know, the Lord, the Lord can humble people. We know this, right? People are good at humbling people. The Lord and men are in the habit of humbling those who seek glory for themselves. But Jesus said, if you will humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. So the house of the Pharisee, remember the Pharisee? He says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like so-and-so. I'm glad I'm not like one of these people. And it's really easy for us when we read the Gospels to go, wow, you know, I'm so glad I'm not one of those Pharisees. That's a joke. 
I'm so glad I'm not one of those Pharisees. But remember, that's exactly what a Pharisee says. When you read the Gospels and you say to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not one of them, that's exactly what they would say. We all have that streak of the Pharisee in us. But then Jesus, uh, again, turns his attention back from the guests who've seated themselves in their arrangement, and he takes out his finger once again, and he puts it back on the host. Let's check this out. Verse 12. This is all awkward. He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I remember when we were, you know, planning our wedding and you're like going through all the details of a wedding reception and you're thinking, how many guests can we have? What can we afford? Who can we invite? Who do we need to leave out? You know, all the friends and family considerations, not wanting to exclude, but you can't invite everyone. And there are different considerations that you take into yeah, consideration when you're sending out the invitations and it reveals a little bit about yourself. Do you invite because you'll get invited back? Do you give the invite because you're going to get something back? Or do you give the invite because you want to help that person? Do you invite knowing that you'll get nothing in return? And Jesus said it's better to invite those who can give you nothing back because then God will repay you. Invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. God will repay. Isn't that awesome? That's the issue. It's like, well, who do you want to get your pay from? You want to receive the praises of men or be paid back by God? Paid back now or paid back later? God will not be in debt to any man, the scripture tells us. And I like this. Jesus says, You'll be paid back at the resurrection of the just <laughs> in comparison to the resurrection of the unjust, which is at a different time. You'll be, you will participate in the first resurrection of the dead. So this is quite the party, isn't it? I just want to point this out. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this front part of this text, but this is quite the party, isn't it? It's like, wow, could you imagine yourself being here? The awkward, the silence. Jesus pointing out and dealing with the unspoken elephants in the room, teaching lessons to the host about throwing a dinner party, teaching lessons to the guests about humility, and then he mentions the resurrection of, of the just, and this actually excites one of the people sitting there at table with them. And the guy comments, we're going to read on this in a second, he comments on how wonderful and how blessed it will be when the kingdom comes and you get to participate in that banquet, in that feast, in that meal, in the coming of that kingdom. And I would say this, it's like, it's kind of like this guy's being really polite as I read it. He's like showing interest in what Jesus is saying. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds with a story, a story that is actually going to call into question a man's certainty about participating in the kingdom and that banquet. 
a story that would call into question the certainty of everyone in that room, everyone sitting at that table, and I would say this, everyone who hears the story today even. I actually read that this has been called the most devastating parable Jesus ever told. Let's check it out, verse 16. Great dinner party. Awkward. But he said to him, A man gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have, been, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So, you know, like I said, this was prefaced by someone, I think, trying to be polite speaking about the great blessing of eating bread in the kingdom of God. You know, in the culture of that day, when a host prepared a banquet, it functioned differently than, you know, how we operate in our culture. In our culture, you know, we, we say, hey, we're going to have dinner. Would you like to come? Uh, dinner will be at 6 p.m. And then, you know, you expect your guests to show up at 6 p.m. You feverishly get everything ready, go about all the business and making sure the house is clean and everything's organized and some guests come on time some some come late and you account for that you you get all ready for it. you think okay we'll we'll actually serve dinner at 6 45 unless the clerks are coming then you move everything 15 minutes earlier um they're not even here this morning i'm picking on them that's not how it worked in ancient times in ancient times you would set a date you would say this on august 28th we're having a banquet we're going to have a banquet, and we're inviting you to come. But the time would not be set. So it would function like this. The day for the banquet was set, but the time was not set. So you go about the business of everyday life on August 28th. You get up, you brush your teeth, you, you go to work, or you do whatever you've got to do, and you wait to hear from your host that everything is ready. And then when everything is ready, you just drop what you're doing and you come to the house and you participate in the banquet. The, the host would feverishly work to get everything ready. And when everything was ready, he would send out his servant and, and tell you it's ready. And you would drop what you're doing and you would come to the banquet. And as an invited guest who had accepted an invitation for August 28th, you knew this. The banquet is going to happen. So you had to live your life, live out that day with a prepared heart, with a plan, dressed and ready to go, knowing that at some point you were going to have to drop what you were doing and respond to the invite. And, and it was courtesy to drop exactly whatever you were in the middle of and come. So you had to be ready. You'd have to be dressed. You'd have to be waiting all that day. 
So Jesus tells this parable in, in the cultural context of three guests with their excuses. These are three people that had already accepted, had received and accepted an invitation to the August 28th banquet. They had already declared their intention to come. When the servant comes, we'll be ready. We'll drop whatever we're doing and we will come. They just were waiting for to be told that dinner was ready and the master has, has everything ready and then they're going about their activities and accordingly they would drop them and go to the banquet. But Jesus said these three people got word that the banquet was ready and they began to come up with excuses. There's actually two groups of people in this story. Those who received the invitation and didn't come and a group that never received an invitation and they got to participate. The first man's excuse was a business deal. <laughs> he had business that had come up. He had bought a field. He needed to go see it, which, you know, typically just some general advice for life. It's good to go see the field before you buy it. But um, I, I don't know. He, he was busy conducting the business of the world, and he blew off the master when the banquet was ready. The second man said that he had just gotten some oxen, wanted to try them out. It's like, dude. You can try out your oxen tomorrow, man. It's like, what's wrong with August 29th? There's a banquet on the 28th. You said where you were coming. You accepted the invitation. Now it's ready, and you're going to be distracted by your latest gadget, the newest toy in your life, five oxen. The third man said, I just got a wife. I'm like, well, bring your wife. Pretty obvious, right? Bring your wife to the banquet. That's the simplest solution. But the natural affections and relations of this life had distracted this person from the priority he was to give to the banquet and the master's call. All of these people, they had an excuse why they couldn't immediately respond to the invite. That was the expectation. Immediate response. And you guys, this, this parable, it's about the kingdom of God. This is about the preaching of the gospel. You're invited to come. There's a banquet. There's a wedding. It is being prepared. You're invited. Come and eat to come and receive life eternal and abundant. Jesus said this, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's August 28th, man. Everything is ready. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the Father's right-hand side, and he is coming again. Everything is ready. The invitation is going out. And should you make excuses and refuse him, because other things are more important to you in this life, the warning of this parable is this. Your place can be filled by someone else. So enough with the excuses. Drop them and come to Christ. Well, I just got this business thing I'm pursuing. I mean, I can do the Jesus thing later in life. Well, I have this relationship with my spouse or my girlfriend or boyfriend. Well, well, I just, you know, I'm just going to do whatever and then I'll deal with Jesus. Man, drop the excuses and come to Christ. Yeah. Come. <laughs> Everything is ready. The master has it all laid out, and you can feast on the things of God. Amen. Come and eat, Isaiah said. 
Come buy wine and food without price. Come with your heavy burdens and be yoked to Jesus. Take his yoke upon you and know the power of a life yoked to him. Come, for he has made all things ready. And those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. You know what makes a master furious? Is those who say they intend to come and then make excuses when the call goes out and don't respond. What makes the master furious is those who will let any little thing get in the way of responding to his invitation. I would say to you, if you hear the master calling and you make excuses that you cannot respond, you put yourself at risk that your place be taken by another. Jesus will ensure the banquet is full. And if you're not there, the fault is not in him because he did everything necessary for you to come. He's removed every obstacle. Well, he'll take your sin and wash you white as snow. Jesus will ensure the banquet is full. He will ensure it. You know, to me, it's amazing that the word of God presents the kingdom of God and presents heaven to us like a feast. Isn't it awesome? A wedding feast, a wedding banquet. The best you could ever imagine. I always look forward to that at a wedding. I'm like, I wonder where we're going to eat, you know, when we get the wedding invitation. I'm like, wow, okay. Enough with the speeches. Like, let's get on to the food. We know we're going to, like, eat good stuff here. This is the best wedding reception ever to come to Christ. God's kingdom is not a bore, man. It's not a graveyard, is it? It's a banquet, the scripture says. It's a wedding feast. Now, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit so designed the gospel of Luke to teach us that if you should come to the banquet, there is going to be a cost to you. And this is where the conversation begins to shift with where this text goes next. Let's, let's check it out. We're just going to take a light look at this at the end of this chapter this morning. Jesus begins to talk about what will happen if you will follow him as a disciple. He says, you have to know there's a cost. Salvation is free, but discipleship is not. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see him will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Awkward. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this theme of this chapter flips from, you know, the banquet and eating and humility and all of these things to the cost of discipleship and the need to count that cost. You think about this, you know, what Jesus says, how terribly embarrassing it would begin to build a house, you know, lay, lay the foundation for the building and not having properly worked through the costs and then running out of money partway through an unfinished house. 
You got no money? Now you got no money and you got no house. So Jesus says you have to count the cost before entering into a building project. Or imagine for a moment going to war, not knowing the number of your troops, not knowing the number or amounts of your resources. If you don't properly account for your army and you don't have a, a good sense of what the, the enemy has in, in his armed forces, uh, that's a pretty big roll of the dice and it's probably not going to go well for that kind of person. So Jesus says this, you have to count the cost if you're going to follow me. And he uses comparative terms in this. He says, you have to love me and you have to hate other relationships. It's not literally like, Hate your spouse, hate your wife, hate your children, hate your brothers, hate your sisters. It's not literal in that sense. It's a comparative term. It's like comparative in terms of your depth of love for Jesus. Our love for him is to be so great, it's as though we hate all others. We choose him first above all things. Which isn't totally comfortable, right? I read this, I'm like, seriously, whoa, this is tough. But Jesus is saying if you're your spouse or your children or your siblings or your parents make one claim on you and I make another, I win. That's how it has to be. You have to choose me. You don't have to cut off family relations, but there, when there's a conflict, Jesus gets the loyalty above all others. And Jesus says this as he talks about this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. See, it's not just Christ before others in my life. I also have to pick up my cross, which means I also must die. Following Jesus isn't like, you know, a nice cushiony seat, is it? it it's a cross, not a cushion. Following Jesus is not a bed of roses. It's a crown of thorns. It's a battleship over the cruise ship. A cross is not tennis elbow or a knee replacement. The cross is not a minor inconvenience. The cross means death to self. Jesus is saying that if you are going to be my disciple, you are going to have to die to yourself. And if you are going to be my disciple, you are going to have to renounce all that you claim to for yourself. That's the cost. We know this, right? I mean, you and I know this, it's easy to follow without counting the cost. We've all done things in our life that if we had understood the cost associated at the end of the road, we never would have done it. And Jesus says the time to count the cost when it comes to a relationship with me and being my disciple is beforehand. Before you get in too deep and you realize, wow, I don't want to pay this cost. And Jesus is making a claim on all who would respond to him. He's making a claim on you and I. That if we're to follow him, we know that we're to know this, that salvation is free, but it ain't cheap. It'll cost you. Look at verse 34. We'll wrap here. Jesus, Jesus said, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of, neither, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Salt's a funny thing, right? Like, I mean, we get this picture in Scripture. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And we know that salt has preserving power. It adds, it adds taste. But salt, you know, has two purposes that we don't think a lot about in our culture. Salt can be used as fertilizer. Because one of the things they do at the Dead Sea is they're like, you know, in their excavations, they make pot, they, they extract potash, salt. And it's used as fertilizer. Salt can be used to, uh, in soil to promote and help growth. That's kind of a cool thought. It's not one of the things we often think about. We say, well, salt preserves culture, you know, salt adds flavor. No, salt actually also causes growth to happen in good soil, which means, uh, you know, just for fun, before you reduce it by 30%, you better know what you're doing, okay? But that's a story for another day. Salt helps soil. That's what Jesus says. Salt actually helps soil. It creates an environment for growth. And salt also can be used as a disinfectant. It can stop evil things from growing. You can treat manure with salt. Like a common practice in that day in places where there were public washrooms where you would use the washroom and there would be salt present and you could take it and you could put it on your business after you were done to disinfect to clean your hands. Salt helps create an environment for growth, and, and salt also stops bad things from growing. Isn't that cool? It stops evil from moving forward. And we're called the salt of the earth. This is what the Christian is for. We're to stop the spread of evil, and we're to fertilize soil so good things can grow. You're the salt of the earth. Wherever you are, Wherever you are, because Christ is in you, your very presence brings the goodness of God and helps create an environment for growth. Isn't that awesome? I'd often think this when I was working in the secular world. I said, man, Lord, I'm here. You live in me. I pray you just bless this business because I'm present because you're at work in me. May I be a blessing. May you bring growth to this business and to my employers and to my bosses because you're with me, Jesus. And by your presence, because of Christ in you, working through you, evil is restrained wherever you are. You know, it's like, how many times have you been in the workplace and someone's dropping some language and then they turn and they see you there, the Christian, and they're like, oops, sorry. And that's telling you, salt, you're preserving culture. You're, you're uh, driving back evil. So Jesus warns, if you lose your salt, if you don't count the cost, if you don't pick up your cross and follow him, if you don't love Christ before all things, you can lose your salt in this world. That's where that saying comes from. A Roman soldier was actually paid. Part of his pay was to receive an allotment of salt. That's where the saying comes from. That man is not worth his salt. He doesn't deserve to receive his wages because he's useless. You can lose your salt and, and your presence can make no difference in this world for the kingdom of God. And so the exhortation from Jesus is this. When I call, come. Count the cost. Don't just be part of the crowd. Be the salt of the earth. As Jesus said elsewhere, pick up your cross and follow me. Church, the invitation of the kingdom is come. Let's come to Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord, this morning, uh, we just hear the exhortation of your word. 
Jesus, we pray that we would be not, not be men and women of excuses. Lord, when we hear the master's voice, we want to jump. Jesus, when we hear your voice, we pray that we would be men and women who drop all things to come and serve, to come and eat. And so, Jesus, we just uh, hear the invitation this morning. I pray, Lord, just in our hearts right now, we just take that posture of coming to you, Jesus. Lord, maybe for salvation, maybe you're there, there are those here this morning, Lord, who don't know you. You said, come, come to me, and I'll give you life eternal and abundant. Jesus, you, you made the way for that to happen by going to the cross, bearing our sins in your body, dying in our place, raised from the dead, opening the path, making the bridge to the Father. Jesus, this morning, we just respond to you to say, we come, Lord. Forgive us our sin. Wash us clean again, Jesus. Lord, for those who walk with you for a long time, Lord, maybe our, our hearts just get hardened at times. The attitude of the Pharisee comes out in our life, Lord. Would you forgive us our sin this morning? Pray, Lord, that our hearts would just be soft. We just want to jump when you say come. We pray, Lord, that we'd count the cost. We'd not be afraid to lay down our lives, Lord, because you're with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us when we come to you. We thank you, Jesus, that, that you desire that we would be those whose presence bring about good. They create environment for growth. Lord, you desire that our presence would be those who cause evil to be restrained. Jesus, we want to be salty, real salty for the kingdom and for your glory, Lord. And so, Jesus, we soften our hearts before you this morning. We pray that your spirit would work in us. You work through us, Lord. You work through this body. You'd bring glory to yourself and to your name. We thank you, Jesus, for the invitation to the great banquet. Lord, we're waiting for you to come. May we be ready. May we respond today and be ready for the future, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.